Hello and welcome to this edition of the IFS Zooms In. I'm Paul Johnson, Director of the Institute for Fiscal Studies. And today, because today is early January, we're going to look into the crystal ball to the extent that we can and have a look ahead at the economy through 2024. What might happen to the cost of living crisis? What might the Chancellor do in the spring budget, which we've been told early Christmas present, March the 6th? And what sort of things are going to come up through the election. That's quite a lot of things to cover, but happily, I'm joined by my colleagues Ben Zaranko, Helen Miller and Carl Emerson to talk about all of those things. Of course, underlying all of this is going to be the question of what happens to the economy this year. We're not going to talk very much about that, but I think we can all agree that most of the forecasts are suggesting that nothing much is going to happen to the economy this year. It's unlikely to grow very much. Doesn't look like we're going to get a big recession. It's going to be another year, probably, of stagnation. And that's going to be what underlies, I think, much of the economic debate and much of how people are feeling through the year. But it's actually how people are feeling that I think is going to really matter, isn't it, Ben? What's going to happen in terms of the what we've known as the cost of living crisis? Are we expecting that to ease through 2024? Are people going to be feeling better off at the end of the year than at the beginning? I think it's definitely going to ease relative to the horrendous experience of the last couple of years when we look at what's happened to living standards. But I think that the picture is generally going to be that it's going to be a bit grim, maybe a bit less grim than it has been, a bit less grim than we were expecting. But still, cheerful as you can be, a bit less grim. A bit less grim. (laughs) I still think that we're expecting an economy with very little growth. It might be touch and go whether we see a recession. We're starting to see a little bit of real wage growth, but not enough to undo the big hits to wages we've seen in the last few years. At the end of this year, people might feel a little bit better off than they were at the start, particularly if they benefit from some of the big increases in the minimum wage we're going to see, for example, or benefit recipients will see a fairly chunky increase in what they receive from April. But people probably won't feel massively better off and they're almost certain to feel worse off than they did at the start of the parliament. But I think really important here is A lot of that is what's happening on average. Different households will experience very different things. People are differentially exposed to lots of these shocks, a lot of these trends. And just to take one example, a lot is going to depend on what your housing situation is. If you happen to be an owner-occupier, you're probably going to be okay. If you are a renter having to move house during this period, you're probably going to be seeing a big increase in your rent. If you're remortgaging during this period, you're probably going to see a big increase in your mortgage repayments. Now, Helen this year has to remortgage on her house. Yeah, I'm sorry, Helen. But Helen has to remortgage her house this year and Helen's going to face a big increase in her repayments. Now, those increases we were just talking about before we came on air might not be as big as people were warning six months ago or a year ago, but that's still going to be unpleasant when it happens. That's still going to be a big hit to Helen's income. I'm fortunate that my rent is locked in for the next two years, so I'm okay. It's really going to vary from person to person. I think that we should look beyond the average when we're talking about this stuff. Come on, Helen, tell us about your housing costs. Oh, I think it means drinks on Ben at the pub. I think, I think like lots of people, I've locked into a mortgage at less than 2% and I looked at how bad it would be if the rates were up at 6%. So Ben's right that I'll be pleased that it's not as bad 
bad as that, but I'll have to remortgage in spring at something, you know, four or above four. And that's going to be a huge increase. I think like many people, even though I'll know it's not as bad as it could have been, that's a big increase in, in mortgage double, costs. Doubling your interest Doubling payments. my interest payments. And that's going to be a big noticeable increase. So I think like lots of people are coming off their fixes this year. A lot of people have locked in under two. A lot of people will be going up and more than doubling their interest payments. And you're going to feel that that's going to be a noticeable increase in, in payments every month. That's one of the uh, strange things actually about this year. I don't think anyone's really expecting the Bank of England to increase interest rates any further. But actually, this is the year when a lot of people are going to feel the impact of the interest rate increases we've seen so far. Uh, and one of the things that's worth saying is that's quite a, it's a particular chunk of the population. If you look back a couple of decades, maybe 40, 45% of people had a mortgage. It's now only about 30%. So this is a relatively small chunk of the population who are really going to feel the pain from these increased interest rates. And actually, another chunk are getting some benefit from them because, of course, higher interest rates, if you've got a decent amount of savings, are going to um, increase your income through the year. But going back to sort of Ben's broader point, my guess is, and I think the um, general forecast in the OBR and elsewhere bear this out, is that on average, we might be just a little bit better off at the end of the year than at the beginning. It does look like earnings are rising faster than prices at the moment. But, and this is a really important fact, I think this might be the first time, if not ever, certainly for a long time, at the end of a five-year parliament, people on average are going to be worse off than they were at the beginning of the five-year parliament. I think that's broadly where we are, isn't it? I think that's right. I think it's important to bear in mind that the, the most recent set of official forecasts we have from the OBR are from November. Now, it was only a couple of months ago, but actually quite a lot has changed in the interim. The, the mood around what's happening to inflation, what might happen to interest rates has changed quite a lot just in those few months. So I think there's, there's grounds for some cautious optimism, if you're in government, for example, that things won't be as bad as the OBR were warning. The OBR was saying that actually household living standards would continue to be squeezed over 2024. But now maybe that 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 won't be the case, or at least not to the case to the same extent. And that will also have ramifications for the spring budget, which will be the first big fiscal decision of the year where those changing expectations for inflation and interest rates will feed into the OBR's forecasts, which I think could be a big factor in what the government feels able to announce and what the parties feel able to put into their manifestos. I think that those forecast adjustments by the OBR could have an outsized impact on the economic debate this year. But it's quite interesting that we're talking here about maybe things aren't going to be quite as bad. We're really scraping the barrel here to say <laughs> maybe it'll be a bit better. This feels a million miles away from the days when we had productivity and economic growth that was, you know, one and a half, two percent a year, and you could feel that things were getting materially better. And you You're could talking actually about pre twenty eight. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, almost um, ancient history now. Yeah, but there's still yeah, it does exactly. It feels like ancient history now. We're grappling around about maybe things will be a bit better, maybe it won't be quite as bad, and that's really very distinctly different from uh, when the last Labour government was in power, for example where we could think about actually things getting materially better. Yeah, as things can only get better as the as the tune went. I think it is worth saying at that point that at least some of what's happening here is international. The whole world or the developed world economy has slowed down a lot since the financial crisis. This isn't all about who happens to be in office in the UK at different points. And we'll come on to some of what Ben was saying about what this might mean for a spring budget in a minute. And it looks like Mr. Hunt might get a little bit lucky over a relatively short period of time, given what's happened to inflation and interest rates. But actually, there's quite a lot already coming in on the tax side. In January, in early January, just a couple of days after we're 
recording this, the national insurance cut announced in the November budget is going to come in, but also in a sort of offsetting direction, we're expecting in April that income tax allowances and thresholds will be frozen yet again, which is actually quite a big tax increase. And certainly if you look at the period again since 2019, one of the things that is really weighing down on people's living standards, at least on their real incomes, has been some pretty chunky tax rises. Helen, perhaps um, we can just take us through, let's take this a bit at a time. The the immediate thing, national insurance cut, great news, 2p off employee national insurance contributions, some off self-employed national insurance contributions as well. If we're in work, at least for the next couple of months, we're all going to be a bit better off. A bit, yeah. National insurance contributions or NICs are a tax on earnings, so they're not charged on pension income or on the earnings of people above the state pension age. They're not charged on unearned income like dividends. But if you're an employee or you're self-employed, then yeah, you're getting this. You're getting this cut. So to give you a sense of scale, if you're earning about thirty thousand pounds, you'll get a cut across the year of around three hundred and fifty pounds. So that's noticeable. That's a tax cut. But as you said, the context of that is the background to that is that there are these other tax increases in the pipeline. I think there's some confusion about whether taxes are being cut overall or not. And the short answer is they've been the national insurance have been cut in this 2P way you said. But overall, because of the threshold freezes, taxes are still going up. So national insurance contributions are coming down this month, but income tax, at least on plans, Chancellor might do something in the budget, but at least on plans at the moment, income tax uh, is effectively going to increase in April. Now, Helen, perhaps you could just explain to us why it's increasing, given that in one sense, nothing's changing. The, the, the rate's not changing and the point at which you start to pay income tax isn't changing. So why, why, why do we call that an increase? Exactly. So nothing will happen in April in the sense that you won't see a tax increase in your paychecks. But what would normally happen is that in April, thresholds would go up in line with inflation. And that's not going to happen because the Chancellor has decided to freeze those thresholds. That means that you'll be paying more tax than you otherwise would have done. So a different way to think about this. But one way to think about it is that had the thresholds been increasing with inflation, then in April, when those thresholds increased, you would have seen a cash cut in your in the amount of tax you were handing over in that month. Thought of differently, you can think of as your income is rising with inflation, if thresholds have been in rising with inflation as well, your tax bill wouldn't have changed. But instead, because the thresholds are frozen, you're being dragged into paying higher taxes. So a Chris, bigger fraction of your income is taken in tax because your income's gone up in line with inflation if you're lucky and the point at which you start to pay tax hasn't gone up. Exactly. And as part of that, more people are going to be paying tax at all and more people will be paying higher rates of tax. So yeah, more tax is being paid. There won't be a point at which you'll see that tax increase suddenly arise in your paycheck, but nevertheless, you are paying higher taxes. And the overall effect of that, if you look at the end of 27-28, which is when the freezes are due penciled in to continue until, and if you're earning £30,000, then the freeze into thresholds is a tax increase of about £900 and the national insurance cut is a tax uh, giveaway of about £350 compared with today. So overall, your taxes on personal incomes are going up. Giving with one hand, taking away with the other. Same old story. Yeah. And don't, don't forget, of course, that these allowance and threshold freezes started a couple of years ago. And if you take that whole period of is it six or seven years of, of freezes of those, but that's the current plan at least. That plan, of course, may change. That is a huge tax increase. I mean, maybe of the order of fifty billion pounds in in the single year at the end of that period, which is genuinely and it's often hard to comprehend these 
billions and tens of billions, but a £50 billion tax rise is a big tax rise. And of course, worth saying again, that at no point did the Chancellor stand up and say, I'm increasing income taxes by £50 billion. He stood up and made a much smaller increase because at the point in time where he announced the freezes, inflation was forecast to be lower, so they didn't raise as much money. What's happened is inflation and its forecasts have gone up and therefore that tax rise is bringing in more money. So the Chancellor has got this big tax rise without having ever to announce a £50 billion tax increase. And of course, the overall effect of that, I mean, let's again look at this Parliament, it's still looking pretty much nailed on that this will be the biggest tax increasing parliament in peacetime history. That, that is a remarkable fact that taxes probably rise by ben, something like 3% of national income over this period. Little more, more like 4 4% and of national ne- income. And Huge. In, in close second is the first term of the new Labour government where it was more like 3% of national income. They're running quite ahead in this. I think there's nothing that the Chancellor could conceivably do in the spring budget to, to change that fact. That's probably something that's going to remain as a trophy for this parliament for, <laughs> the, for, some, for the foreseeable future. Obviously, no government desperately wants to increase taxes. And I think I believe the Prime Minister when he says he really doesn't want to increase taxes, and yet they have increased taxes. We've heard about the big increase in income taxes, obviously, of course, been a big increase in corporation tax. And we've been generally suffering from a lack of growth. But I think that in understanding that, Carl, I think we've to understand some of the choices the Chancellor will face at the budget, but also come the election, because of course there's been a reason for those increases in tax. Partly, actually, we've been had a fair bit of spending increases over this Parliament. Partly, frankly, the government's been a bit unlucky. We've had COVID. We borrowed an extra three hundred billion or so. There's quite a lot of dead interest to pay on that. We've got higher interest rates, and that involves quite a lot of additional spending. We're facing uh, an aging population, more spending on health and all those sorts of things. So you put all of that together. And in a sense, we've, we were always, I think, going to reach this point where taxes were going to rise. It happens to have been over this parliament with that additional big hit from COVID. That, that's what we've seen so far, this big increase in tax, which I think is likely to be permanent. But are we now are we now sorted in terms of the public finances? We've had this great big increase in tax, as, as, as Ben said, biggest increase ever over a parliament. Surely now we've got lots of money to play with. The Chancellor can do whatever he wants, can't he, with all that extra money? We certainly have had a very big increase in tax, as you say, but it still leaves government debt at above 90% of national income. It's been pushed up by the financial crisis, by the pandemic, and by the recent cost of living crisis. So for very understandable reasons, we've racked up a lot more debt. And with weak growth and the outlook for interest rates as they are at the moment, and the government's desire to spend on public services, it still looks to be the case that debt is basically going to be flat over the medium term, not on a decisively downwards path. So the public finances are a long way from being sorted. And if one lesson of the last 15 years is that bad shocks come along, and when they do, the government wants to step in and help public services, help households, help businesses for very good reasons. I think that does mean we want to get debt down in the good years, or at least be striving to get it down in the good years. And Jeremy Hunt is only just about managing to get that done, maybe in five years' time. So the public finances remain in a very precarious situation. And I guess at the start, we talked about how things were perhaps not quite as grim as what we might have thought in November. That's probably the case with the public finances too. They're in a bad state, perhaps just not quite as bad as what we might have feared back in November. 
So we're going into the we're going into the budget. We've had these all these great big tax rises, but despite those tax rises, you're worried about debt because it's not on its way down, and it's not on its way down partly because we've got such feeble growth, partly because we've got very high spending on debt interest, partly because of the costs of an aging population, and so on. Nevertheless, do you think? that on some measure, and these are always a little bit odd, the Chancellor will get to March the 6th and say, look, I've got some extra headroom. I've got some money to spend on tax cuts or something else. Yeah, I think that is quite a plausible scenario. We were talking about how the interest rate outlook is a bit lower than what we might have thought back in November. And that's obviously good news for those looking to refinance their mortgages. It's also good news for the government. It borrows part of the government debt at those interest rates. And back in November, the official forecast assumed that the bank rate, which is currently at five and a quarter percent, would drop to around four percent in five years time. The market expectation is now that it will drop to something like three and a half percent. If you talk to people in the city, often they say they think it's going to drop a bit further and it'll be something like three percent. So We could be talking about interest rates being half a percentage point, one percentage point lower in five years' time than what was expected in November. If you did take 1% off, that could save the government £20 billion a year in debt interest. So a very big saving could allow the Chancellor to announce some tax cuts and still claim that he's not planning to borrow more than he was in November. If you did have £20 billion to give away, for example, you could abolish inheritance tax and take another 2p off the next rate. But I think I'd stress that you'd still be spending a lot more on debt interest than what we expected to be spending a couple of years ago. And the claim that we're having debt falling in five years' time, given the settings we have, given the tax system we have, is predicated on a plan to cut public service spending in particular in 26, 27, 27, 28 and 28, 29. So we're back. We're planning some spending cuts where there's no detail of how those spending cuts will be delivered. And one has to question whether they really will materialise. Yeah, and Ben, like that's the that's the underlying oddness of this whole debate, isn't it? That we're talking about what was published in the budget or in the autumn statement back in November, as Carl was saying. On the basis of those numbers, it just about looks like debt will be flat, tiny fall at the end of the period. But all of that is based on some penciled-in spending plans, which look like they're growing a little bit, less than one percent a year. But when you take account of the fact what's happening to health and defence and all those sorts of things, that's going to mean, isn't it, another period of austerity for other bits of public services? I think it will. I'll come back to that in a second. I think first it's worth saying that, yes, the the financial market's expectations of what might happen to interest rates have shifted. We've had one month of better than expected inflation numbers. Does that mean that the Chancellor should be announcing permanent tax cuts off the back of that? A very uncertain change to a very volatile forecast, meaning that we can, we're just richer and we can afford to cut taxes. It's not obvious that's a great way to be making policy decisions. I, I know that will fall upon deaf ears in the Treasury, but I think it is worth stressing that things can get worse as well as better. If this, the, the events over this five years... We're always t- cheering here. Things can always um, get worse. Not, th- things are getting better and that's great, but we should remember that we've had two very large bad shocks this parliament. Carl and I were talking earlier today about apparently the shipping rates have gone up very quickly in the last couple of weeks. There's been disruption to some supply chains. 
another ship could get stuck in the Suez Canal. You never know what's going to happen that could push up inflation again. And the world can get better, the world can get worse. And if you keep cutting taxes when everything's a little bit better, then you keep increasing borrowing when things get a little bit worse, you end up ramping up the national debt and leaving the public... Your work last year showed that's exactly what chancellors do. Yes, it did. It's not a surprising finding, but we we quantified it. But going back to where we started, so one, one of the reasons why debt is on paper on track to fall ever so slightly in five years' time is because, as you say, the government's penciled in some very tight spending plans and some big cuts penciled into government investment. Despite the fact that there seems to be this growing consensus that investment's important, the government's planning to cut it very sharply. And public service budgets are being penciled in for, on average, some very small increases. And that implies cuts to something implies if you're going to increase the NHS budget to pay for the workforce plan, we're going to continue to meet our promises to our NATO partners to spend a certain amount on defence, etc. You're going to be cutting something. Are you going to be cutting local government? Are you going to be cutting the police? Are you going to be cutting the courts? Are you going to be cutting HMRC? The government hasn't specified yet because it hasn't held a spending review, but it's going to be cutting something if it sticks to those plans. And I think this year... 2024 will be a year when I think we'll see some signs of of trouble in some parts of the the public realm. I think the signs that councils are increasingly struggling to with cost pressures they're facing. We might see more councils in financial difficulty. NHS trusts are struggling to balance the books and having to pare back their efforts to cut waiting lists. I think more schools are reporting that they're in financial deficit as these cost pressures are adding up and the, the funding they're being provided and the demands that they're facing are not commensurate with that. So I think that public services are in for a torrid time. And as it stands, both political parties seem committed to these spending plans that imply further cuts and another round of austerity. And I find that difficult to believe. I find that difficult to believe that's what we're going to do, or if we are going to do it, I think we could do with a bit more honesty from our politicians about what is it the British state currently does that it's going to stop doing? What is it that the public sector is going to stop providing that it currently provides? Because I don't see how you can maintain what the state currently does and also make these deep cuts to large swathes of it. Uh, and I think that's that's going to be the story, I rather suspect, of at least the IFS's election campaign over the next several months. We are in this world where both the main political parties are saying similar things. They want to get debt down over, over a parliament. And of course, they both want to be saying that they're going to be nice to people in the sense of not taxing them more or ideally taxing them less and delivering better public services. And unless something lovely happens to the economy, something unexpected, which is possible, the economy might grow a lot faster than we're expecting. But on the basis of best forecasts at the moment, you can't square those three things. You can't have better public services and lower tax and get debt down over a parliament. And that's where it's going to be very difficult for the politicians, I think, to level with us. Carl, that's, uh, I think, something that, in a sense, I've got a horrible feeling we're going to be boring people silly this year saying that. It does feel that way. And in terms of taking areas out of what the government does, it's it's just difficult to see that really happening with an ageing population putting a lot of pressure on the healthcare budget as well as the pension budget. We've seen the working age benefit system be made less generous through the 2010s. And it's not clear there's appetite to make bits of it much more generous going forwards. And if you look at other areas of government, if you take childcare, for example, the current government's been expanding the offer really quite 
considerably. So if you were of the view that you wanted the state to be doing less in order to facilitate a lower tax burden, you might say, maybe we should stop adding things to what the state does. And the current government's actually trying to do more, not trying to do less. And if you take the list of things that Ben was talking about, where if you're going to protect the NHS and if we're going to keep to our uh, our defence pledges and so on, where might you cut? We're talking about all the same things that got really cut during the 2010. So local government where spending is something down something by a fifth per person and we're seeing local authority after local authority going bust. The justice system where there are big cuts and we've got huge, huge backlogs. All of those bits of the public services which in a sense don't get a lot of focus from the politicians, there's not much scope to cut them much further. But Helen, what about the tax increases? What We have heard some suggestions of tax rises from the Labour Party, VAT on private schools, additional tax from non-DOMs. I mean, how much difference can those sorts of things make? So I think everything we've heard from the Labour Party so far, in their own right, they could be interesting and have important effects. But in this big picture context, they're all really small, right? Where so I guess we'll, when when they actually get the proper proposals, we'll put numbers on them. But we're talking low billions of pounds. This isn't going to move the dial on any of these things. It's not going to be enough to suddenly not have to cut all these departments and eradicate all these penciled in spending cuts. So I think there's still going to be the question of does Labour want to have a very constrained state and maybe pay for little bits of additional things here and there, or does it want to do something radically different? My guess is that they won't try to answer that. I mean, something back a little bit as well, just thinking about the budget, given that we've just talked about these big long-run pressures and the penciled-in cuts, it does feel to me that the discussion about tax cuts in the budget is completely untethered to all of that, right? So if you were actually thinking about the, the next five years and what we needed to do, you'd be thinking about growth and how do we get growth up? What role does the government play in that? Of course, tax isn't the only thing there. You think about planning, lots of education, lots of other things, but you might be thinking about which bits of tax might you reform, not just cut, but reform to help growth. And they did do things to corporation tax that were in that vein, but you'd think more about that. Or if you're thinking about you're going to reshape the state and reduce what the state does, maybe you're going to cut certain things. You don't want to think about the redistributional effects of that and how that matches up with the tax cuts you're going to do. None of that is happening, right? All the tax discussion really is about the retail offer to voters before an election and what's going to make people want to vote for the Conservative Party. And is it cutting inheritance tax or is it income tax or something else? It's not about what's the state of the UK economy in the next five to 10 years, what do we need to be doing to our tax, who should be paying more or less in the broader context of the, of the package of things the government does. So it does seem to me that we need to be keep, keep telling people to pan back to that bigger set of conditions and thinking about tax. And the same is going to be true for Labour too, right? So you mentioned there's non-DOMs, maybe some changes to how we tax private equity, maybe some changes to VAT and private schools. And again, we could talk about each of those and they're interesting in their own right. But there are lots of bigger things about the shape of the tax system and who we want to be paying tax and how we want to tax capital versus labour incomes and so on that ideally you'd like to be hearing about from a potentially incoming government. And I suspect we won't hear much about any of that at all. I think that's the flip side of the conversation about public services. So we absolutely need to be thinking about the structure of the tax system, not just its size, but we do need to, I think, grasp the nettle and accept that it's going to stay bigger than it has been. And then, as you say, who's paying it and how can we design a tax system which is more pro-growth? And as you say, to be fair to the government, they have done some things in terms of um, changing bits of the structure of corporation tax, for example, to achieve that. But that, 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 this isn't the discussion to go into all of the other things you could do to the tax system will, uh, I'm sure, do a lot of that as we go through. So that's one side of it. And the other side of it is what Ben and Carl have been talking about, which is what can we do with spending? Is there really scope to change the shape of the state? We have over time 
changed it a lot. Clearly, we used to run lots of nationalised industries. We used to have students paying for their own tuition fees. We used to we used to spend vastly more on defence than we do at the moment. We've drawn back from all of that. We've had a decade of austerity. We're facing a population which is much older than it used to be. We've got higher spending on on debt interest. We've got poor growth. Put all of that together. And I may be suffering from a terrible lack of imagination, but I struggle to see where big change comes in the sense of finding a bit of that to get rid of or to reduce spending on. I think Helen's right in saying that most of the tax, in particular announcements from Labour, have been pretty small beer in terms of their size, and they will raise a billion or two from this particular tax and we'll spend it on this. I think the one bit of clear daylight between the two parties is Labour's green investment plans. And I think this year, 2024, we're expecting to see an election. I think that's probably going to feature quite a lot, mainly just because it's actually the only thing that's a really big difference between the two parties when it comes to tax and spend. So I think we'll probably be talking incessantly about what it means for Labour's borrowing plans or whether it means for Labour's fiscal rules and whether what impact it might have on the economy. Labour talking about the need to you know, invest in the green transition and so on. I think that will be a very uh, contentious point when it comes to fiscal policy in the election campaign. And it's a really interesting statement of priorities, isn't it? Because, as you say, it's the one big thing. It's about £20 billion a year by the end of the parliament, give or take. And there's two things that, are, again, your work has shown this, Ben. One is that still, if you think of all of that as capital spending, that will still mean that capital spending on those plans is lower than it is today as a fraction of um, national income because the current government is planning such a big cut in capital spending. But the second thing is this statement of priorities. With this very constrained fiscal environment, the £20 billion that Labour are looking to say that they're going to spend, and they're not allocating it to education or childcare or tax cuts or sorting out the justice system or what have you, they've chosen that particular thing. And there's lots of good reasons to focus on investing in the green transition, don't get me wrong. But I think that, in a sense, is where a lot of the debate ought to be focused, not on £20 billion in five years' time, which may be raise from tax or borrowing or whatever, but the statement of priorities. I I agree. I think there's a couple of ways to think about that. First is, clearly this is saying tackling climate change is a key priority of Labour. Sure. There's also no single definition of what green investment is. So you're saying it might, you're not saying anything about investing in the NHS or schools. It wouldn't surprise me if we turned out that building some new schools and putting some solar panels on the roof gets classified as green spending. Or if investing in the NHS estate and in doing so, making your energy, making it more energy efficient, that's important. Maybe that gets classified as green spending as well. They could get creative with that, right? The second thing is that this is not just about green investment. I think there's a question about investment generally. There seems to be this growing consensus among a lot of commentators and economists that the UK ought to be investing more. And the UK certainly is invested less than lots of other countries have over the past couple of decades. But if you want to invest more, it has to come from somewhere. So if we're talking about Labour's green investment plans, if they're spending more on green investment within a given envelope, they're either going to be spending less on public services or less on social security, or they'll be we'll be taxing people more and we'll be potentially people be consuming less if there is it through taxes. And that, that sort of balance between consuming today versus investing for tomorrow, I think, isn't discussed as much as it might be when we're talking about those priorities, because I think that's actually, in some ways, the big decision that Labour seems to be trying to make. But we haven't really had that debate properly yet, I don't think. Yeah, and an important one. And we probably need to wrap this discussion up. But I think that sort of underlies a lot of our 
arguably some of our economic problems over a long period of time, which is that either politicians haven't been willing to level with us or we haven't been willing to take that decision, that sometimes you need to constrain your consumption in the near term in order to make you and the country and your descendants better off in the long term. And that is particularly true, probably with green investment, where we need to do that. But there's no getting around the fact that will cost us money up front in order to save us, save the planet in the long run. Uh, 2024 is going to be a busy year for politics. It's going to be a busy year for economics. Let's see what happens. Let's see how the economy does. There are some positive signs. Some people are projecting a recession. Some people aren't. Um, we're not making projections, but let's be optimistic. Let's hope there isn't a recession over this period. We're going to get a budget in March. We may or may not get another fiscal statement before the election in the autumn. We will for sure get lots of promises and statements and rhetoric from the various parties about what they're going to do over the next parliament. And the other thing you can be absolutely sure of is that we at the IFS will be scrutinising what they're saying. We'll be looking at the overall consequences for tax spend and fiscal policy. But we will also, and I think this is really important, be delving into the detail of whether the particular proposals make sense. What do they tell us about the priorities of the different parties? How well structured are the tax proposals they're putting forward? How does it make sense in terms of what they're talking about in spending on health and education and all sorts of things? So we will come back to you week by week, fortnight by fortnight, over the next year with IFS zooms in, looking at what's big in the news at the time, what we've been analysing and looking at, and I'm sure calling out all those politicians who are promising that they will sort everything out over the next few years and will be asking whether they really can. So thank you very much for listening to this edition of the IFS Zooms In. To see more of our work, do visit www.ifs.org.uk. And to further support us, do consider becoming a member for as little as £10 a month. You can find out more in the episode description. We'll see you next time.